Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Blind Insights. Today, our guest is Nicholas Christakis, and we're so happy to talk to Nicholas. I have now read his book twice. It's such an interesting book called Blueprint. And after the music, Tim's going to ask me what it's about, so you know what you're listening to today. Well, thank you, David, for that intro. Of course, we will be speaking later on to the Sterling Professor at Yale, Nicholas Christakis, uh, their highest order in the university, and he's worked at uh, Harvard and uh, University of Chicago. He's, he's made the rounds, but of course been involved in the controversies of all the terrible things that are happening on university campuses, which you could read more about in Jonathan Haidt's Coddling of the American Mind. And this is the point where I say, trigger warning, <laughs> and then go, bah humbug, yes. piss off, no trigger warnings on our podcast. <laughs> well, David, what's the book about? Let's start there. Okay, listeners, if you haven't had a chance to read any of it before, I will encourage you to read the book. It's called Blueprint. What it's essentially about is the idea that social mammals of which humans are an example, and the great apes are examples, and some kinds of whales are examples. The most important thing, in a sense, about our evolution is that we've all ended up with a set of social characteristics of how to get along effectively with each other and thrive in the world as social species. And this collection of characteristics as a whole, Nicholas refers to as the social suite, And humans have the full set in big amounts of the social suite, but other social mammals have quite a few of them at different levels. So what is amazing, and it's what Nicholas calls in the book convergent evolution, Mm -hmm. that the best solution are social mammals to living on our planet with similar characteristics, and that these similar characteristics are so deep in us and these species that it actually gives... Nicholas, and I would argue the vast majority of readers or listeners to his book, a wonderful reason to be hopeful about our future. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's such a good uh, precedent for tribalism, but in, let's say, the positive use of the word. Yeah. All these things can go wrong, Mm. but I think what Nicholas will argue is that the default is to go back to the social suite more often than not being a positive, and that when it gets out of whack... That's normally only for a short time because the default setting is, and particularly for humans because so much of the book is about humans, is we have survived so much because these evolved social characteristics keep us working well together, caring for each other, learning from each other, learning with each other. And I don't want to reduce it to an anecdote, but in many ways it is the perfect anecdote to stop you from being misanthropic or being cynical about humans and human nature. One of the biggest takeaways that I've had from researching it so far is that if the negatives of human interaction and human nature outweighed the positives, we would have been solitary animals. And by the mere fact that we are not is almost irrefutable evidence that working together is a net positive, basically. Look, we have some famous books about what would it like if humans were loners. And the the most interesting of them is Max Stirner's book, The Union of the Egoists. And the problem is that Stirner gets to the end of the book and realises that a union of egoists just can't work. Because if we were truly loners and didn't need each other at all, then there would be no one very quickly. Mm. And that the minute there was a sexual drive, we'd just be some very basic not social animal, but that's not what we are. Mm. So don't try and pretend we could be. And even with the example of, say, some of the great apes, you know, orangutans tend to live alone, but as people who research them have found out, this is only because of limits of food. When there is large amounts of food in one area, orangutans come together, hang out in bigger groups, and have a heck of a time hanging out with family and friends <laughs> and look sad when the foods run out and they have to go their separate ways and more or less live alone again for the next year. So you can see how deeply important the social is as a positive and binding force. Mm. 
And it very much will be before Christmas when we all have that massive roast and come together. Mm, turkey day. <laughs> or for vegans in the room, not turkey day. Tofurkey day. Or faux turkey? <laughs> Tofurkey. Tofurkey? Yeah. Tofu-erky? Photo-tofurkey? Yeah. <laughs> so why should listeners read such a book? What will be, what will, what, how, will their, how will their mindset change? I think there's two really important things to get out of the book. One, that in evolutionary slash historical terms Mm. there are so many forces driving our species in a positive direction that can be destabilized but that will come back on to course you know the the compass needle will come back to its true course of being sociable working together effectively for positive outcomes for the majority of us and that's really important the other side of it is and it's something that will raise quickly with Nicholas, but yeah, it's not his area of expertise, is that the technology we have today in terms of the Humane Technology Centre has downgraded our performance. Now, this is bad, but it's also temporary. They talk about we can change it by designing technology differently, but what you will see with Nicholas is also any time the way we use media, technology, whatever else takes us away from better social, better human performance we can come back on to a better path by just making better decisions. Mm. Uh, saying just making it makes it too easy. We can choose to make better decisions because we have historical precedents for doing so. Mm. In very much the Jeff Goldblum, Jurassic Park sense, nature finds a way. And it, even though the, the forces that we have created that seem to put certain things like friendship and social networks in jeopardy are strong, Mm. mother nature and our proclivity toward being in social communities is stronger Mm. we might be stupid but history will try and undo it yeah absolutely so anything else that the listeners should know before we uh, jump into this interview nothing i can think of that is so important hopefully listeners have got enough now to go okay there's this thing called the social suite there's all these important characteristics for social mammals they have helped us to thrive and if we don't follow them we go off track for a bit but they seem to be so deep we come back biggest thing probably to keep in mind today is even if you don't necessarily understand everything we talk about with nicholas keep in mind that the end point of it is very positive that if we make good decisions in keeping with the social suite the likelihood is things will be okay which is a great podcast to do a week before christmas true Well, without further ado, we'll jump into an interview with Professor Nicholas Christakis. I'm joined in the studio by David Orney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. I have a big pink coffee, so all is well. (laughs) I'm very excited because we also have a very prestigious guest joining us all the way from the United States of America, Nicholas Christakis. Thank you, Nicholas, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Far out. I'm not all the way through your book, but David's read it multiple times and we're, we're both very big fans. And of course, we've been, well, I've been following all of your actions and things since the Halloween protests and, and uh, <laughs> all, all of that controversy. So I've known about your um, infamy and fame, yeah, uh, in, in all its aspects. So mm. I'm feeling very privileged to be able to talk to you today. Thank you, as I, again, as I said, for having me. It's nice to speak to people from Oz. Do you want to start with your question, Tim, or do you want me to start? Oh, I'm happy to start. Okay. Nicholas, one thing I kind of uh, get from, from your, your works is that you are someone who has a lot of faith in humanity. And I'm, I was wondering if, if, firstly, that was a motivation for some of your research to begin with. And secondly, if you've become very proud of the results of your work in being such a good testimony for the goodwill uh, of of human humans and in human nature. Well, I mean, it's. I, I think there are multiple ways I could answer that question. First, I would just say that uh, there's no doubt that I'm optimistic by nature. You know, my disposition is to towards to see the good in things, and my my sister always teases me that I'm constantly positively reframing things. I think I, I have that disposition. And also, as I've grown older, I've come to believe that's a, a better way, at least for me, uh, to live my life. And, you know, here I've been influenced by many, many other thinkers that I've encountered over the course of my life, including, for example, the Dalai Lama, 
who, you know, emphasizes seeing things positive. I remember when I was in medical school 30 years ago, hearing some kind of radio story about, um, maybe it wasn't 30, maybe it was 25 years ago, they were doing a study of uh, Buddhist monks and MRIing, uh, doing MRI scans of their brains. And they interviewed someone. And the gist of the story was that he had for years and years trained himself to constantly see things in a different way. And he told the story. I was in Boston at the time. I was a medical student at Harvard Medical School. And they told the story, which was funny in a Boston setting because Boston drivers are notoriously so bad, of him driving in the traffic. The monk was describing the discipline of reframing things and training yourself to see the world in a positive light. And he told the story how he was being driven, I guess, to this study and a car cut them off. And the person that was accompanying him said, well, how would you re-narrate that? Look at that jerk that's driving in this horrible way and is inconveniencing us. And then the monk said, he said, well, he said, I, I imagine that there's a man driving that car and his wife is in the back seat and she's going into labor and she's delivering a baby and he's desperate to get her to the hospital so that so that she might be well and his his child might be well and that it's nothing for me to slow down and allow him to pass. And I heard this story as a young man, you know, in my 20s and I, was, and I thought, that's the way I would like to be. And so my first part of my answer is that I think I, I am dispositionally optimistic and I, I have been powerfully affected by arguments I've heard over the years about the benefits of that. Or Nelson Mandela, for example, when he when he left prison after 27 years, and he, he gives this powerful testimony about he knew that if he didn't leave that behind him, if he didn't leave the bitterness behind, he would be in prison for the rest of his life and that he would choose to see things differently. So that's part of my answer. But, but on a scientific level, the way I would answer you is as follows. I think that for too long, in my view, scientists, you know, evolutionary biologists and social scientists you know, the dismal scientists, the science of economics, and the people on the street have, have been overly focused on the dark side of human nature, on our capacity for selfishness and mendacity and, uh, and tribalism and cruelty and violence. But equally, I think we have been endowed with capacities for love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and these good capacities must necessarily be stronger than and have outweighed the bad capacities over the course of our evolution. Because if they hadn't, we wouldn't be living socially in the first place. We would be living as isolated individuals. If, if every time I, I came near you, you, you lied to me, you told me falsehoods about the environment, useless information, or you were mean to me, or you killed me, I would be better off living separately. We would have evolved to be solitary animals, but we did not. So the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. And, and this is what I focus on in Blueprint, on, on these benefits, these, these good qualities that we have. I think it's a really interesting point you bring up in Blueprint, Nicholas, that we have the situation where you know, we're very good at cooperating to a point, but then inevitably you get the free riders and the defectors. But something mm. I've never thought of or never read anywhere, and when it came up in your book, the idea that that, of course, undoes cooperation to a degree. But then you get loners who go, well, I'll just do my bit I need on my own, step away from both the free riders and the people who just keep you know, doing the right thing and let themselves being used and abused. And that because you get the loners as well, eventually this becomes a cyclical thing. Mm. Could you talk more about... You know, what you've observed with how this cycle works and how fast it goes and on what scale it happens? Well, this is a very technical and complex area of evolutionary modeling. And I, I, I'll give a sketch right now and, and there are more details and more vivid examples in the book. But yeah. the gist of it is that if you imagine a population of two kinds of people, so, so these are models or sort of fantastical models or theoretical models that evolutionary biologists and mathematical biologists come up with to try to understand how did cooperation evolve? How is it possible for us to be altruistic, to let's say pay a price to benefit someone else, which would be seemingly so contrary to traditional notions of Darwinian fitness. So they develop these models and there's some empirical evidence for some aspects of this, but it's, it's sort of a dicey and complex area. But the, the gist of it is as follows. Imagine you have a population of people who wish to cooperate with each other and they start cooperating, and that's beneficial. But then 
it's quite easy for a group of defectors who take advantage of cooperators and don't reciprocate and then just benefit themselves to take over the population. So, so a defector might, let's say there's a mutation and someone mutates an, an animal and forms the, adopts a strategy as a result of being a defector. They take advantage of their neighbors and they, that will overwhelm the population because they will reap the benefits of the cooperation of others and pay none of the costs. So this basic insight suggests that cooperation will be very difficult to evolve because as soon as you get a group of people cooperate or, in, or animals, you know, individuals in a species cooperating, not humans, we don't, these arguments don't need to be about humans, defectors will make inroads into the population and take over. So this state of affairs persisted for a while and there are lots of theories and, and ideas and models that explain various ways in which cooperation can nevertheless arise, some of which my own lab has done experiments in, but some of which involve other types of speculations. For instance, if you add a third kind of individual to this population, namely a person who, or an individual that's a loner that says, look, I'm not going to participate in these social interactions. So now instead of just having cooperators and defectors, you have cooperators, defectors, and loners. It turns out that the addition of these loners can uh, make it possible for cooperators to arise and actually create a kind of cycle between cooperators, loners, and defectors, like kind of like rock, paper, scissors uh, kind of situation. So that, uh, I don't know what, if in Australia, do you have that game, rock, paper, scissors? Yeah, we do. And I've always tried to learn the rules for the Big Bang Theory version where you add Lizard and Spock, but my brain will never hold the extra information. <laughs> well, the point is, is that, you know, that, that defectors beat cooperators, cooperators beat loners, but loners beat defectors, something like that. So the gist is, when you add this group of loners in, when defectors will overwhelm cooperators, but then people or individuals in this population choose the loner strategy, defectors can't take advantage of loners because loners aren't connected to anyone. So the loners grow more and more numerous. And then eventually everyone in the population is a loner. But now some individuals, when they start cooperating, they can benefit from each other. And, uh, and now they start taking over. They outperform the loners, groups that are cooperators, individuals that are cooperators. So they expand and fill the population. But then as soon as that happens, then once again, defectors can, can make inroads. They can, defectors can arise and then they take over. So you have this repeated cycle that goes round and round and round. And then finally, other studies suggested that if you add a fourth category of people, specifically if you add a group called punishers or a type called punishers, people who are willing to pay a price to punish defectors, then you can actually get stability when you have four types, cooperators, defectors, punishers, and loners. And a very small number of punishers or even the threat, the possibility of the existence of punishment in the presence of loners or the possibility of being a loner actually can make cooperation thrive. And so this, this is a model for how uh, a species of uh, individuals uh, in a species, a group composed of individuals, how cooperation can arise and be sustained. And the wonderful thing with that model is, of course, it's, it's not it, the only way. It just because it's not the only way, but it is one way. I'm sorry, go on. I like the fact that with that model, you have an inbuilt degree of motion and change. You know, there's going to be constant bubbling in the pot as these things yes. get in and out of balance. And anytime anyone talks about something steady state, my default thing is to go, well, it's not going to work because that's not how anything works. But here you've got parameters where there can be so much defection, so many loners, so much cooperation. And then, mm. like you said, enters the potential for the little bit of a punisher and then working out, well, who's that punisher going to be? Because I thought about as I was reading this bit of the book and go, my natural setting is to flick back and forth between being a loner and a happy, you know, work with other people person. Mm-hmm. You know, I will well, have to work with other people until it's being ripped another, off. That's another wrinkle you're adding, which is that mm. within an individual, not just across time. So you don't just have across time, different prevalence of different types of individuals. You're saying across time, a given individual might adopt different strategies. Mm. And that's also been studied and also possible and also helpful. It's interesting too that you know when everything you write about in the book you use human examples because we have them but animal examples where you can that your social suite your set of characteristics that are relevant to building a functional quote unquote good society 
is something that's not just for humans, it's popped up in different species. It really seems to be contingent on all of us and all these species evolved on Earth where these social strategies are the best strategies if you're going to be a social creature. It, it's so interesting to see that these ideas are powerful enough to transcend our idea of thinking we're special. Yes. I mean, what, what we find is that at least for social mammals, so leaving aside the eusocial insects, you know, mm. the ants and bees and so forth, which are clones, they're all mm. genetically identical within a group. One of the distinctive features of, 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 of mammalian social life is that we, we typically live, or for the species I'm interested in, we live with unrelated individuals. And if you are to make a society and live convivially with unrelated individuals, you need a set of qualities that I call the social suite that make that possible. What's interesting, for example, just to pick one example, is friendship. Many animals, all sexually reproducing animals, mate with each other. But we do something else, we humans, we befriend each other. We form long-term, non-reproductive unions with unrelated members of our species. Namely, we have friends. And this is extremely rare in the animal kingdom. We do it, certain other primates do it, elephants do it, and certain cetacean species do it. And it's, it's extraordinary. And, but one of the things that's interesting about it is so, th- so that each of in these animal species, these social mammals, the, pe- the animals can have friends, you know, chimpanzees have friends, elephants have friends, long-term relationships with unrelated individuals. They're not having sex with those other individuals. Um, and what's amazing is as a result of that friendship dyadically expressed, like two individuals are friends with each other and different pairs are friends and so forth, these species assemble themselves into social networks. And when you map the social networks, for example, of of elephants and of us, you find that mathematically they're incredibly similar. And this is amazing because elephants, the last common ancestor we had with elephants was 85 million years ago. So elephants have independently, by convergent evolution, evolved the capacity for friendship and the capacity for social networks and it essentially because both us and them had to solve a problem of living socially. How are we going to live together? And so we, we and they developed these capacities for friendship and social networks to solve this problem of living among our conspecifics, of living among our own type. And what's furthermore amazing to me about this is that this, this, there's a kind of paradox or irony here in that when we're trying to understand our own humanity, it's often ironically very helpful to go and look at animals because if we can share the capacity for friendship with elephants, we can share it with each other. The the universality, every society on earth has friendships And, and you take it for granted, but it's actually quite unusual in the animal kingdom and it's very distinctive. It's universal, it's good, it's a wonderful thing that we do and your confidence in it and your recognition of its universality and its illustration of the nature of our shared humanity is heightened by the fact that we see it in elephants. So, you know, if we, as I said, if we, if we can share this capacity for friendship with elephants, surely we can and we do share it with each other. So I think that's a rather pleasing pleasing thing to observe as far as I'm concerned. Some of those things that have contributed to our friendships for mm, thousands of years uh, seem to be currently in jeopardy. Uh, and I'm not sure if this is part of, let's say, a cycle or whether there are things that are legitimately in contention with our natural state of social networks. Do you think we're heading for a shipwreck? Well, I mean, you're alluding to shipwrecks. As you know, I, I discuss cases of shipwrecks in the book uh, as a sort of natural experiment in social order, and including uh, some famous wrecks on, uh, in your part of the world. But um, I would say two things in response to that. First of all, the arguments in my book are all arguments that I could make and, and, and are fundamentally makeable about human beings who are alive up until 10,000 years ago. So in other words... These, these qualities that we have, these capacities we have, these arguments I make about how we live together are arguments that I could make even absent the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution or the information revolution 
before the invention of city-states or weapons of war, before all of these things. So th these are these are qualities that we had that we could manifest even before we, you know, live the way we do now. That's my first point. My second point would be, however, that it is very difficult for culture or social institutions to suppress these capacities. So it's very difficult to devise a procedure that prevents people from loving each other. And here I'm talking specifically about the love of our mates or of our family members. This is another universal quality, love. And there is one case in the book I discussed, the Na people of the Himalayas, where they organize their sexuality or their romantic relationships around sex rather than around love. Uh, and it's a very interesting case, but it's the only case I'm familiar with where society is organized in a fashion to try to suppress loving attachments between sexual partners and instead to privilege a, something that might superficially seem to be a kind of more licentious uh, interactions. In fact, it's not uncommon in these villages uh, for every for every woman to have had sex with every man uh, in in the village. But even in these societies, as I discuss in the book, young couples fall in love. Uh, they can have as much sex as they want, but that's not the issue. They want to be in love. They want to forswear all others, and they often run away to to be in love with each other. So, so love is another example of this type of universal trait. And it's extremely difficult for any cultural set of rules to suppress it. Same with friendship. You know, you, you can have sort of totalitarian regimes like the Stasi, for example, in East Germany, that are organized in a fashion to cultivate suspicion between people so that people don't have mates. You know, here I'm talking like in the Australian sense of uh, friends, mm -hmm. you know, deep friendships with each other because everyone's suspicious of everybody else. But it takes a, a huge cultural pressure to suppress that natural tendency. And it it doesn't survive for long. Eventually, these innate capacities that we humans and desires that we have are, are expressed. So I guess my answer to you would be that although you are right to hi highlight how certain features of modern life might be interfering with our ability to live together in this way that I'm describing, my answer to you would be that only when they are very powerful and even then not forever. Yeah, see, that's interesting because that lines up really well with something that you know we're trying to get a guest in from the Humane Technology Centre, and they're an interesting bunch of people that are arguing what current technology has done to us, and they're describing the effect of current technology on us as a downgrade. You know, it has <laughs> un undone some of our performance, but their point is it fits very nicely with yours. You've established what the historical evolutionary pattern is, and they've said how it's got smacked in the last twenty years by technology. And they're not saying the downgrade will last. It's just something currently in place because we're doing stupid things. And if we do different things, we'll go back to normal settings. Yes, I think that's partially right. I mean, I'm not familiar with the arguments you're making, but from your description, I would agree. Yeah. But I mean, I think you have to think of many of these things. For example, just picking online media, for example, we evolved, we humans, to gossip about each other and to pay attention to each other and pay attention to information, third-hand information. So... So I hear from you that someone else is bad and I pay attention to that. It, you know, it's valuable information to me if I live in a small group and, and reputation is another, actually one of the mechanisms we didn't discuss by which cooperation can be sustained or can evolve in a species such as ourselves is if individuals have reputations. So for example, if every time I defect, that information is recorded by the group, I have a reputation that's a way that cooperation can be sustained in a population. So anyway, for many reasons, we are gossipy creatures. We pay attention to third-hand information about other individuals and so forth. However, then you have a technology like online social media. Uh, I'm sorry, before I get to that example, and then for years we had things like soap operas where people would become addicted to soap operas. You know, we, you would really, you would follow the lives of these characters. You'd be really invested in what was happening to to these fi fictional characters on TV that were seemingly very realistic. And, and that addictive property of soap operas was tapping into our deep desire to be gossipy creatures and to be interested in the lives of other, other people, often from a safe distance. And I think social media is that kind of a modern, most modern version of a kind of soap opera, except about real live people. You know, you can go on to Facebook and in a kind of gossipy way, track all of these other individuals 
And it, it's tapping into the centers of our brain that get a dopamine hit when we, we hear news you know, about other people, good or bad. So, so I think that, that many of these technologies that we have play to our, our strengths and our weaknesses. And these strengths and weaknesses, we, you know, we, we evolve to have in an ancestral environment. I'll give one just tangential example. It's, it's obvious, I think, to most people, but, you know, we evolved in a place where, where access to, uh, sweet and salty and fatty foods was, was rare. You know, there was lots of vegetation around for us to eat, but killing, killing animals was difficult. And we thought it was delicious to eat, you know, this uh, fatty protein uh, meat. And, uh, and, and sweet things like honey were rare. Salt was often rare. So we evolved to really love to eat these types of things. Of course, in the modern environment, those types of innate tastes or capacities are dysfunctional because, you know, you eat, you, you, you eat a lot of high-calorie foods because that's what you want to eat. There's limitless supply of these foods in many, you know, rich countries. And uh, so we, we have an obesity epidemic. And so the addiction to social media and the addiction to, to high-calorie foods are similar in this regard. A yeah, misfit between our ancestral and modern environments. And that's a very important point you're making there is that there's you know, good and bad that can be played on and it's deciding which one we want to play on. Play on the social things of cooperating or play on the desire to eat salty and fatty things. You know, <laughs> when we can, we need to use the consciousness as effectively as possible to land on the better side of our sort of predilections. Yes. I mean, it's exactly right as well. You know, we have, you know, we are thinking animals with free will and so we can, um, you know, we're not prisoners of our genetic destiny. You know, we can absolutely play a role in these things. To jump back to friendship, you know, going on this free will thing, if we look at, you know, the fact that we've domesticated so many species of animal and, you know, take the example of the you know, wolves, which have a pack structure, but again, mm. nowhere in the book do you talk about wolves ending up with, you know, something like friendship. They certainly have oh, bonds, wolves. whether it's friendship is probably actually, different. I, I mentioned other pack animals very briefly, and like horses very briefly, and I uh, and the reason that those cases are special is that packs of wolves are typically related. You know, they're yeah. cousins, and that's a, a more easy challenge to see why there would be altruism or cooperation or mm. collective uh, behavior in um, in a group of animals that has high genetic relatedness. What do we do then with animals we've domesticated? Because you're know, having grown up on a farm, from having you, know, I think at the most we ever had in the farm was about. 14 horses, most cattle I think we ever had at a time was about 70. And certainly you see relationships there that seem very close to what we'd call friendship and not necessarily... Horses? Yeah, horses and cattle both. Well, I, I don't know much about cattle and I know, I'm really interested in what you're saying. I know a little bit about horses. I'm very surprised to hear that cattle would manifest this. They, they hang out with the same... You know, friend, and it's not necessarily a relative. But again, yeah, this is after generations and generations of domestication. So, are we, in a sense, through us doing the selective breeding, you know, picking for characteristics we like? You know, are we making them more? That's a fascinating observation. I'm vaguely remembering that someone else once told me about the cattle example. The horse example is a bit easier to dismiss in a natural horse setting, because once again, they're typically, you have harems. So mm. you have like one, I don't know about domestic horses, but in, um, in wild type horses, originally you would have one, you know, one top, top horse. I forgot what the technical term is that would sire, you know, would mate with yeah, many. One stallion. Yeah. Yes. Would mate with many females. And then, so all the, they would all be, you know, really related. The next generation would all be, you know, they they were either his sexual partners or his descendants, and they were all related to each other. So that kind of a structure is less difficult. The, the cattle, I'm very surprised by, and I, I don't. I must confess to not knowing about enough about what ancestral aurochs uh, from which we domesticated cattle, uh, how they lived. Um, but I'm surprised by what you're saying. Now, possibly some of it is a uh, function of the domestication, just as you're suggesting yeah. that we we have bred into them a kind of conviviality. 
That's a great word for it, conviviality. That's exactly what you see. It may not be friendship as we understand it, but you start to bridge those bonds of it only being genetic because it is such an unnatural environment. You know, they might have the wiring to be afraid of the predator, but they're not really afraid because they're inside the fence. Yes, that's true. And we, we also know, I mean, and I do talk at length in the book about domestication of other animals. Mm. Uh, and I actually talk about domestication of cattle quite a bit in the book in a, in a different setting. Uh, looking at the role that played in 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 in, uh, in providing milk in our environment and how that mm. cultural innovation changed our our evolution, but I, I talk a little bit about uh, how when animals are domesticated they become more docile, yeah. and one of, and, and there's a theory that we we humans are self-domesticated that we that we act we look like a docile animals we. We have a number of traits, including tolerances, social tolerance of other members of our species. Uh, we have non-reproductive sex, which is often seen in domesticated animals. We, um, we, we have um, juvenileized features compared, for example, to other primates. You know, our faces look like baby faces compared to other mm -hmm. primates. Anyway, we have a number of these qualities, and there's a, a theory, I think, correct, that uh, in over millions of years that we humans domesticated ourselves and we did it, if, if you can believe it, by weaker members of our species banding together and killing uh, more violent members of our species, more aggressive members of our species. So if you were an overly violent ancestral human, uh, you really weren't tolerated by, in the group and a larger number of other individuals would band together and kill you. And over many, many generations, the result of this was that uh, violence-prone individuals were basically removed from our population, and slowly but surely, we we became more docile. Anyway, this is all discussed in the book, but mm. we've gotten a bit of feel from your observation about friendships. Yeah, but but you've ended up somewhere really interesting because you know a couple of years ago I was reading about the Dunedin study in New Zealand. Yes, where you know they look at the guys in that you know who have been in jail most of their lives and another proportion who are fine. And then eventually once the genetic testing is affordable, you see that there's a proportion of the males in the study who have a damaged version of MAOA. And those you know, um, who had the damaged version, who had a nice childhood, are fine. The ones that had a violent mm -hmm. childhood have become violent criminals. So what you can see here is the power too. It's not just necessarily that we excluded or killed the hyper-violent. It's that as we became more docile as a species, certain genetic traits didn't express because the environment was good enough not to trigger them. Yes, that's a very uh, famous example, the Caspi study yeah. uh, in New Zealand uh, of an interaction between genes and environment. And the, the study has spawned enormous literature and it's become somewhat controversial uh, whether that particular finding is true or not. But the general claim, I think, is no doubt true. And even that finding might, might actually be true. It's, it's, you know, people are arguing about it. But um, it, and, and, and it's sort of like a kind of the um, dandelion and orchid model of humans that, you know, some people are dandelions and some people are orchids. But if you have very easy environment, both the dandelions and the orchids thrive. But yeah. if you have a very tough environment, only the dandelions thrive. So yeah. it's an interaction between your innate nature and the environment you face that ultimately determines what happens, just as you described. See, it's very interesting, too, that you know, with people with the capacity for extreme violence, um, best example I can think of is Andy McNabb, the ex-British SAS soldier who's become an author. And he's written a couple of books now with... A psychologist who, of course, his name has eluded me on the morning, I need to remember it, who's a specialist in working on <laughs> sociopaths. But, you know, they together wrote a book called The Good Sociopath. Mm. And Andy really pointed out the point to the psychologist that the psychologist wanted if it was the answer. It's like, well, do I want to be up against society and be jailed or excluded? Or do I want to be society's hard arm? Like if the military are going to let me loose in an elite unit to do gratuitous violence... Mm. Why would I not sign up? Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting that, again, with specialization within a docile society, we have room for people who are smart enough to realize it's a lot better inside the tent than outside the tent. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of broader, I'm not familiar with that particular example, but there are a lot of broader theories about 
about the origins and, and potential functions of sociopathy. Uh, you know, people with, with no conscience, for example, who, who are more prone or find violence more easier. One of the theories is that, uh, and I, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, to prove this theory, but one of the theories is that groups that have a small fraction of such individuals uh, are able to outcompete other individuals. So in other words, we tolerate the violence within our groups so as to be able to express that violence towards other enemy groups, let's say. Yeah, Something like that. Actually, focus, the that's that quite discuss, there's an evolutionary biologist by the name of Sir, Sergey Gaberlitz in the United States who has done some work on these ideas, and, and, I, and I do discuss that uh, in the book. Yeah, it, it's very interesting that so many of the examples you gave in the book, like of the shipwrecks, where the, you know, the two different crews were on the same island. And yeah. one managed to hold together because of their sheer diversity, they had to come together. The other where the captain was very selfish, really the group didn't come together. You know, as you say in the book, they left someone at the bottom of the cliff on the first day who was too weak to climb. So they established that their norm was to sacrifice anyone who didn't keep up with the group immediately. Yeah, they surrendered yes. empathy on day one. Yes, that was the one of the most enjoyable parts of the book to write. So I was trying to find examples, you know, like uh, in the fantasy world of a scientist, what you would really love to do is if you were trying to figure out what kind of society comes naturally to us, what you would love to do is take a group of babies who'd never been taught anything and throw them on some isolated island with, you know, enough food or whatever, and somehow they would be magically raised and then you'd come back 30 years later and you would see, well, how were they organized socially? You know, what kind of society did they make naturally? You know, did they have friendships? Did they have hierarchy? You know, what did they have? Now, of course, it's, it's, it's impossible to do such an experiment. It's cruel and unethical. And uh, it, it's been called the forbidden experiment. Uh, variants of that experiment, incidentally, have appealed to, have occurred to monarchs since time immemorial. Often these monarchs were interested in... Um, what kind of language comes naturally to us. So a typical experiment might be to take a couple of babies and give them to a mute shepherd to raise up in the mountains and then see what language those children spoke when they grew up. And actually, allegedly, this experiment has been tried, multiple, that particular variant of the experiment has been tried multiple times in the last three or 4,000 years. Anyway, we can't do that experiment. So what I was looking for was natural experiments that approximated that and one type of natural experiments that was something like that was it occurred to me was shipwrecks where a group of people were unexpectedly and unintentionally thrown together and had to somehow organize themselves. And I found 20 shipwrecks that involved at least 19 people who were isolated for at least two months uh, in the period of time between 1500 and 1900. This was out of 9,000 shipwrecks that were have been documented that I could find. Uh, and I picked these 20 and I, and I studied them in detail. And uh, there's some lessons from these shipwrecks, but one particular almost miraculous natural experiment that you're alluding to was uh, in the South Auckland Islands, south of New Zealand, not far from you guys, where in 1864, there were two different wrecks on the same island at the same time. And on the northern part of the island, the Inverco wrecks and 19 men are, you know, the ship is smashed to smithereens and, and then the 19 men wash ashore, uh, one of whom is injured. And after a few days at the base of the cliff, though that crew abandons that man to die, and only three of those 19 make it off the island after a, a year or so. And on the southern part of the island, the crew of the Grafton wrecks, and these guys had come actually from Australia, and five men wash ashore. And at the time of the wreck, the captain was sick with a fever in his cabin. And the other four men, instead of abandoning the captain at great personal risk, set up a rope line to ferry him ashore. Uh, through the surf, and he survives. And so this, this shipwreck begins with a saving of a life. And, uh, and these men uh, survive for two years and eventually, through unbelievable ingenuity, uh, make it off the island. So early decisions in both cases, so telling. So in the sense that we may have domesticated ourselves in any new social setting, those early decisions made by whether it be the leader or the group who take control at that moment of crisis could very well set the tone for the society in the short term. My emphasis, yes, you and I right now are highlighting the, the early decision aspect of this story. But uh, the broader lesson for me is that those groups that are able to reflect our capacity for living together by 
by expressing some of the qualities in the social suite that we've been discussing, those groups tend to have fared much better and they don't have a lot of conflict. They're, they're able to work together. And this can be contrasted with other groups. I mean, I also, for example, discussed the, uh, the mutineers of the bounty and the settling of Pitcairn. And I look at the Shackleton expedition. I look at, at many examples uh, of uh, scientists that winter over in, on the South Pole in Antarctica and then communes and uh, kibbutzes and, you know, many, many, many examples, online communities, uh, you know, world of Warcraft and, and mm. a second life and, you know, settings in which we are freed from our corporal body and yet even, and in theory, could organize ourselves any way we want. But even in those settings, we organize ourselves in very particular ways that we are innately pre-wired to do. And, and then finally, I talk about experiments we've done in my laboratory. We, we have um, developed a kind of software that allows us uh, to create temporary artificial societies of real people. And this software is uh, integrated with a, with a source of research subjects online. And over 30,000 people have come to our online laboratory and participated for a brief period, let's say an hour, in our, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our experiments. And we're able to test like what kind of social order works best. And across all these examples, I find again and again that there's certain, certain innate ways that we have of being social uh, that help us to, to, to live together. Mm. It's interesting, your Antarctic examples, because I saw here in Australia the other day that I think for the first time, uh, our group of Australians who winter in the Antarctic will mm. be equal men and women. You know, it's the first oh. time we'll have a balanced crew down there. And I oh, imagine that creates a whole pile of new problems. Because if you look at the Shackleton expedition, it's a whole bunch of, you know, what-ho chaps from Britain going, big adventure, what? Try not yes. to die, what? And that's a great foundation to make it work. You know, camaraderie, yes. that thing of being convivial is so central to their identities even before they went. Where suddenly where you've got an equal number of men and women during winter in Antarctica, now that's a real social experiment in my opinion, where you know, sexuality comes back in the game. The riskiest groups are where you have imbalanced gender. So, for example, either extreme will work okay. So if you have just men, for example, they, they, they fare pretty well. They're not... Mm. But if you have, and you have, if you have equal men and women, my prediction is it'll be fine. It's when you have a big imbalance, you know, when you have 10% women and 90% yeah. men, then you get a lot of violence for reasons you can imagine. Yeah, well, like what you're writing about in the book, talking about the fact that, you know, during the early part of agriculture, you know, humans became polygamous, and then the Romans and the Greeks went, this is too devastating to society. Let's make monogamy the norm by making it, you know, um, something done in law. Because that way males behave because males have got something to look after, something to prepare for. They're calmed down by having a home to go to. Yeah. What yes. a reason for quotas. What a reason to have gender quotas in business and things. It actually makes that would actually actually makes a fairly scientific argument. That's just almost not non nonpartisan. Yeah, we'd be better domesticated humans. Well, yeah. I, I would be reluctant to have gender quotas for a variety of reasons. One of which is that it's not compatible, in my view, with a truly free society. Uh, you know, I would rather have something where we're absolutely careful to make sure there's no discrimination against anybody, but we allow people to express their innate desires. And, you know, for example, would we have a gender quota in nursing, for example? You know, are we very deeply upset that, that uh, you know, 95% of uh, nurses are, are women? You know, I think we, what we want to make sure is that we're not excluding women from the boardroom. We're not excluding men from being teachers or nurses. Uh, but then ideally allow people to make their own choices about how they want to live their lives. Maybe that can be, that's certainly an argument I think we, we could possibly have at another time because that, that then, as you would say, if, if there is a slight imbalance of maybe, you know, 10% women in boardrooms could lend, lend itself toward particularly well, aggressive behavior. Well, we were, well, we're talking about survival situations. I want to be careful yeah, sure. here. I'm not... I'm not. General life is different. Yeah, we're talking about survival okay. situations here where people might be competing for opportunities to reproduce, for example. Mm, That's yeah. not the situation in a boardroom. Um, <laughs> well, we but, hope. But, but, yeah, but I do think that, I mean, I do think there's some, I mean, it's, I don't mean this, I can be easily misinterpreted, but what I mean is that, you know, there's some sense in which any kind of same-sex organization can get very toxic. Yes. Yeah, very and it, it's point. not just all male organizations, you know, all yeah. female organizations. You just talk to some women about 
what it's like what's to it be like a, in teaching or nursing yeah mm. or just in a sorority for example or yeah. In, a, oh, yeah. Yeah. in a field in which you know it's just all women it can also have its own special challenges and the same goes for organizations all men so i, I think the, the for me the, the the first principle i would approach if and and and, and, I, and again in the book the book finishes with a caution against uh attempts to engage in social engineering that that potentially you know uh, where we think we can organize society in a way that's, you know, superior to what natural selection has equipped us for. In fact, I might take advantage of the opportunity and just read for the last chapter, the last paragraph of the book. So uh, let's see here. A key danger of viewing historical forces as more salient than evolutionary ones in explaining human society is that our species story then becomes more fragile. Giving historical forces primacy may even tempt us to give up and feel that a good social order is unnatural. But the good things we see around us are part of what makes us human in the first place. And actually what I argue is that we should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer society in opposition to our instincts. Fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority in order to have a good life. The arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. And I really believe that. And, uh, and, and I believe that on multiple levels, but as we are coming to this part of my story, I don't think it's very easy for us or wise of us to try to engineer social order, certainly not in opposition to our instincts. You don't bend away from yeah. what has worked so well for so long. Absolutely. Well, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Nicholas. It's been very informative and pleasurable to, to discuss these things with you. Oh, thank um, you. We, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you, Nicholas. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Oscar.